We are back for another look in 1 Corinthians. For those of you that are joining us a bit late, every Wednesday we walk our way through a book and we're going through the New Testament books in the order they were written. And we are now in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, full of great stuff, and get into chapter 11, full of great stuff. We're going to go as far as we can today. I have the feeling it's going to be a part one, part two, but we're going to try to digest this as much as we can, all right? Um, starting in chapter 10, Paul warns them, because remember, there are factions in Corinth. Some think they're better Christians than others. Some think that God wants you to be more Jewish than he wants you to be Gentile. You know, you have to be a Jewish Christian. You have to do things their way. Well, the Gentiles were doing the same right back. They were saying, no, you have to do it our way. And so who baptized you? Who baptized you? So Paul's going to give them a warning here in chapter 10 by saying, don't you know, take a look at this first, um, oh, verse, first 13 verses of chapter 10. All of us, and he's speaking of himself as a Jew and speaking to the Jewish Christians there, all of us were in the same cloud. All of us were guided by the same fire. All of us crossed through the Red Sea by the hand of God. All of us were taken to Israel as a group, as one people. And yet, many of them lay dead on the way because they didn't trust God. They didn't believe. And so they were left behind. And God was not pleased with them and their bodies are scattered in the wilderness is the way that Paul put it. In other words, just going to church and just being part of the church and walking around with the church does not mean you are following God. Uh, and again, it's, it's one of those things I've, I've had people say, we've been going to this church for 30 years. That means nothing if your life has not changed and if you've not changed the way that you treat people and treat each other. And one of the big warning signs that you're really blowing it is factionalism. Whereas, all right, I'm a Christian and my politics are on this side. And you go, well, no, true Christians, their politics are on this side. Well, I'm a Christian. The way I think we should handle things like COVID is this. Well, I'm a Christian and I think you're wrong. And to be a Christian, you should handle it like this. It is the easiest thing in the world to divide people. Uh, I used to do a lot of youth rallies. Those have kind of slowed down since COVID, obviously, but I still do some of them. And there was uh, a period of my life I wanted to really stress the, to the teens how easy it was to divide. And so I would ask, all right, who here likes, and I would name a certain style of music. And then who hates that style of music? Well, who likes this group? And who hates this group? And within five minutes, there would be jeering, catcalls, boos, everything else. It, it was done, I truly believe, in a spirit of fun and the spirit of just joining in the play. But it got the point across. It didn't take long to divide us. Paul saying, just coming to church and being part of the group doesn't mean you're making it to the promised land if you rebel. And, and he talks about the kind of rebelling some of them were. In verse um, 7, don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in reverie. That's in um, Exodus 32. They had, um, they had forgotten to behave. They had forgotten to behave. 
And now, behave does not mean to control everything. For example, you can have a group of church leaders come out and say, right, everybody, we're doing this for the church and we're doing this and this and that. And you could be going, okay. And behaving doesn't mean, okay, leader said it, I do it. Behaving means, um, sorry, this isn't your church. This is Jesus's church. Let's just do it Jesus's way. I've seen a lot of people yelling behave who needed to behave more like Jesus. And so this is a real trap. We need to always remember we are to correct ourselves. We are to discipline ourselves. Now, if you have children, you have some other obligations there, but for most of us, let's just spend our time on the interior renovation and then shine like Jesus. He talks about a revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Wow. I'm not sure exactly where that's going, but I agree we should not be committing sexual immorality. And he goes, we should not test Christ. Some uh, versions there test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Do not grumble as some of them did. And they were killed by the destroying angel. Yeah, there is an angel and that's his job. Uh, don't mess with God. And by the way, did you notice what he, what he put it all together and he made them sound equal? Revelry, sexual immorality, testing God and grumbling. Sadly, in many churches, the grumblers run the church. I've worked at churches before where the elders will say, well, I, you know, somebody told me their concerns, so I felt I needed to bring it to the group and we need to deal with it. And I'm going, wait a minute. If they're running the church by telling you what to be concerned about, telling you what you need to change, why are you here? As far as I can tell, you're just an errand or messenger boy for that person. You're a pipe. They're talking in one end, you're speaking out the other. That's don't let the grumblers rule the group. Because if you do, that group's dying. And church attendance is dying, even post-COVID. Uh, and we're not really post-COVID, I know, I get that. Don't need the emails. Um, we will not see churches like we used to see again, is what I'm hearing from all the sociologists. And granted, they've been wrong before but also granted they are often very, very correct. So don't let the grumblers run the group regardless. And don't be a grumbler. I guess that should have gone without saying, but I'll say it, don't be a grumbler. No, the scripture tells that there's great strength and joy in learning how to be content in whatever state you're in. He says, these things are examples to us, so be very careful. And then he uses a verse, uh, says something rather, which we lock off into a verse in verse 13 of chapter 10 that has been misused um, and is a little difficult sometimes to apply. It says, no temptation. Um, the word there really means no testing. Um, it's kind of like no puzzle, no difficulty has been put in front of anybody except that which is common to mankind. This is so important. Ever so often, an atheist will tell me, well, if there is a God, why does evil exist? And I'll just look at them and I'll say, what have you read? 
Miller said, kind of blank, and I said, you cannot believe you are the first person to have this question. You just cannot believe you're that special. So if you have this question, it means other people had this question for thousands of years. How have they dealt with it? How did they either come down on the side of, now I understand how there's God and evil, or I, have, I do not understand and therefore I don't believe in God or anything in between. Why come to me to solve this when there are libraries full of books, audio books, YouTube videos, you can, you can work through this. And it's the same, by the way. Whenever a Christian will come up to me, I had a Christian come up to me once uh, years ago at a youth rally, as one of these adults came up to me. And I wasn't gonna ever bring this up here. But then I heard in Nashville, a radio talk show host who is based here and has, has very strong political opinions, but he's also quite entertaining. And so I listen to him frequently. Not now, I say frequently. Probably, if I'm honest, like four times a month, because I'm usually working when he's on. But regardless, he even said what this adult had said. He said, well, you just tell me this. If we came from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? I wanted to bang my head on the steering wheel, but I have found from past experience that does not help. Um, do you think anybody else has ever thought of that question? Have you gone to try to find an answer to that question? And you'll find that no Darwinist or evolutionist says that you come from monkeys that are around here. Instead, they say that monkeys and humans came from a common ancestor and branched off a long time ago. And by the way, don't let them fool you when I say we, we, we share 95% of our DNA with this. Yeah, we also share most of our DNA with wheat. So don't get excited about that. When you are tempted, you need to ask yourself, how did others deal with this? This is not new. Let's say you're tempted to stray from your vows and have, um, have an affair is what they call it, but commit adultery or fornication, whatever. You're, how did other people deal with this? Well, you might find books on sexual addiction. You might find books on covenant. You might find seminars to go to with your spouse to help the marriage repair. There are things out there. But it seems like every time we're hit with a sin or a test, we act like it's the first time it's ever happened to any human. Oh no, now what do I do? And my response is always, what did other people do that worked? I wanna know. I wanna read and understand what did they do that worked? By the way, if we had that attitude, we'd have a whole lot less violence and political anger in our system. By just going to say, all right, what worked? What does not work? And let's go from there. And by the way, we can argue about the numbers there even because humans are never gonna be of one mind. But God will provide, it says here, a way of escape or the phrasing in the NIV, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now that sounds like a contradiction, a way out so that you can endure it. What's going on here? Sometimes a situation doesn't go away but he offers you the ability to not fold under, be defeated, or sin during the situation. But you can take it. You can handle it. You're gonna get through this. 
it does not mean he's going to open, you know, I've had people say when God closes a door or whenever fate closes a door, God opens a window. What? Sometimes he may, but most of the time he's going to look at you and say, be the big person, be the strong person, be the city on the hill in that room. Now there are times though, it's best to dive out the window. With Timothy, he said, flee youthful lust. If you remember when we looked at that, in other words, don't hang around there and just say, well, I'm going to be strong. He said, no, get out the window. So I'll give you the window on that one, all right? And then he's, he's dealing with their questions. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. That was a big word back then. We always think of an idol. Um, of course, it's what our language points us to. Uh, I've gone into places and seen rows of idols you know, on shelves. And, and the, you know, the owner of the place was Hindu and they had picked some gods to put up there. I know what idols are, but Paul's word is bigger. You can have idolatrous attraction to your political group or to your religious group so that everybody in your group are really Christians, everybody over there not so real Christians, and all the Muslims, Jews, and Hindus, and Buddhists and such, they're just really bad people. Be really careful that you only give allegiance to Jesus, not to your group. There's something about human intelligence. And no, we're not gonna get into IQ tests and all that sort of controversy, no. Um, people can get smarter in small select groups chosen as a way to get smarter. So if I get together with a few of the people in uh, neuroscience and, and MDs and the like that we want to work and solve this problem with a few experts openly willing to learn, we get smarter. But if you get with a big group, the intelligence begins to drop. And if you find yourself in a mob, either burning Portland or storming the Capitol, your IQ drops precipitously. Now, don't write me and say, those are two different things entirely. I know they are. My point is not about left, right, burning down cities versus incursion into the Capitol. I'm talking about why would you do one of these things the answer is you wouldn't unless there was a crowd and then it becomes your idol and whatever it does you do whatever they say you say we can do that with Hollywood stars we can say oh they made a PSA on this therefore I'm going to say exactly what they say we can do it with anybody there are sports stars giving medical information on and I'm going um you're reading a script could I just see the guy that wrote the script and most likely I'm going to approve I don't really need a sports star to tell me this. I need a sports star to do sports. And if he wants to try to show me how, best of luck. I'm not very sporty. So watch your idols. I just, I have to, I can't stress that enough. He, and in fact, Paul says, I'm speaking to sensible people. He actually says that. In other words, I know when I say, stop the idol stuff, some of you are gonna tune out and some of you are gonna be upset and some of you are gonna stomp away. But I'm, only, I'm, I'm gonna just talk to the smart people with common sense right now. Paul was a little fed up. He gets more fed up in 2 Corinthians. He says, you, you go ahead, you just judge for yourselves what I say. And then he goes right back to unity. It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks 
a participation in the blood of Christ. So um, the Lord's Supper back then was an actual physical meal with a spiritual component. It, it was not a spiritual meal with a tiny physical component as it's done today. Uh, we have completely flipped that thing. He goes, you were supposed to be remembering Christ as you ate and as you drank. And the cup of thanksgiving, he says, aren't we all participating in the blood of Christ? Well, then that makes us all the body of Christ. So don't mistreat others. We are the body of Christ. Don't grumble about others. We are the body of Christ. There's one loaf, one body. That He says that through verse 17. And then um, he wants to address the Jewish Christians there. And by the way, I'm only saying Christians, Jewish Christians, because that's the way they were dividing in Corinth. And there were other subgroups in Corinth. Normally, I would not differentiate, but the Jewish Christians had brought all their history with them, understandably so, and their teachings. And it was, it was a real struggle. How much of this is in? How much of this is okay? How much of this is mandatory, compulsory? And how much of it isn't? It's a struggle. So he says, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I then mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot cut and drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and a table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All right, right back to, back in chapter eight, about our eating and our drinking and how we handle ourselves. And he says, you know, we do that meal in remembrance of Christ. It means something. And if you go and engage in the demonic, the Israelites knew this and the Jews were absolutely correct. The Jewish Christians that were telling the Gentiles, you don't go to church over there too, at the pagan temple. You, you have to pull back from this. And Paul says, you know, they're not really gods. They're demons that pretend to be gods and they, they woo people away. And by the way, I've been asked questions about demons and we'll try to get to that in the Monday morning message um, fairly soon, if I, if I can. Love it when you write in patrick at rcfarbor.com and ask questions or um, just make a comment about how our safe harbor is, is working in your life. It has been an amazing journey. Amazing, and thank you for being on it. Um, he's, he's right back to freedom. Now, whenever Paul says you can't do something, he always then comes back to, we do have freedom, but manage your freedom. I have a right to do anything you say. Remember, he's responding to the list of things they, they sent him. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And this is being taped ahead of time. I recently spoke at a church that whenever I left, I had a long drive home and had not had supper. So I thought, well, I'm just going to grab a little something on the way. And I didn't because without drawing this out, my options were not beneficial. I would have not finished the meal and said, well, that was a good decision. 
Therefore, I just kept moving on. I was free to do it. There had been no sin. But it was, it's not really going to benefit me to do this. Well, there are other things that I might do that might not benefit you. And if we are close friends and we're trying to worship together, I think we need to pay attention to that. And say, yeah, I'm free to do anything. You know, I could show up to do a funeral and you know, big, big baggy, multi-pocket cargo shorts and sandals with socks and a t-shirt from a rock show that I went to in 1983. I'm free to do that. It's not smart. It's not good. It's not beneficial. Not gonna help the people in front of me. So he says, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. Now, you may have missed it. He didn't negate what he just said about being free. You are free. We are free to build up others because we no longer have to build up ourselves. We are free to lift up others because we no longer have to lift up ourselves. God has lifted us up. God has accepted us. God has given us what we need. Therefore, we use our freedom to build up others. Some of you reading in older versions might come across the word to edify. Um, in English, that that is a correct good word, but we've lost a sense of it. Edify is, is the same root as edifice, a large building. So when we edify people, we're not preaching to them, we're building them up. One of the, one of the things that I ask couples to do is find something to compliment your spouse about three times a day. And then make sure that you give a super compliment as often as possible. Super compliment is when you compliment your spouse in front of others. Look for it. And the same with Christians. I can walk up and I can find a way to divide with you, but no, I'd rather find a way not to divide, but rather to build you up. So you did a great job. That was very important. Thank you. I think that's something we might need to spend time with later. He goes on, he says, you can eat anything sold in a meat market with a good conscience because those aren't really gods that the sacrifice to. It's just meat. And he says, the earth is the Lord's and anything in it belongs to the Lord, so it's fine. And if an unbeliever, I'm still going here, not quite quoting, but it's following the flow. If an unbeliever asks you to, to meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put in front of you without raising questions or objections. But if somebody puts something in front of you and goes, this was offered in sacrifice of, he says, uh, you may want to look around the table because you might be able to eat it knowing that God doesn't exist. But if you're with a weak brother or a weak sister, you might need to say, no, thank you. We belong to Jesus. Now, get the scenario. You can eat anything with thankfulness. Whenever an unbeliever puts things in front of you, you, you have no restriction there, none at all. And the Jews were learning this. They were, they were getting this, the Jewish Christians were. Uh, it was slowly, it would have to be slowly because it's been part of their culture forever. Not just culture, their law. But they're learning what God had to tell Peter about everything now is his, arise Peter, kill and eat. You remember that out of the book of Acts. So yeah, we can eat it and the pagans put the food down and you don't have to worry about, was this originally part of a temple sacrifice? But if they make a deal of it, 
you know, we, you know, we thank Dagon for the meal that we have just been given, or we thank ba uh, Baal, or it's usually pronounced Baal, um, to, you know, for the food that, that was sacrificed to him, and we remember him, you can go ahead and eat, because that doesn't mean anything, unless you look around you, and there are a couple Christians like this, and they believe Baal is a real God, and they believe Dagon is too. They don't know that they're just demons and nothing. What do you do then? Let's protect these guys. Let's just say, thank you. You're very kind for offering this, but we only eat meals in celebration of Jesus, the Christ. Uh, and we'll be your friends and we'll sit here and we'll, we'll have a, a great conversation and a good time with you. Um, but we're not gonna do this and I hope that's okay with you. You can be nice about this. I've had to do similar things in my life, but he says, don't make Jesus jealous. No, don't make God jealous. And verse 31, whatever you do, eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God and don't cause anybody to stumble. I mean, there is nowhere in the Bible, nowhere that says you can't have a drink of wine or beer or the like, nowhere. In fact, wine and beer show up in scripture. And they're only criticized when people get drunk or they fill themselves. The word gluttony doesn't just mean eating too much. It means to fill you, yourself too much with, it could be drink, it could be work, it could be whatever. It says, no, be disciplined. So I don't believe it's a sin if you want to have a beer. I don't think you should probably bring a six pack and put it on the pulpit and work through it as you're talking to people. Why is it sinful? I, I don't have the authority to say that. What I will say is you're probably not building up the other people. And especially if somebody in your place is an alcoholic, they're not going to hear a word you say. Let's not put stumbling blocks there. Let's, let's be a little careful. And put, this, put the care on yourself, draw your own restrictions, do not restrict others. That's important. Right, we, we're gonna do something now. I'm gonna start something. Uh, we don't have much time to go through it, but I really want to throw a red flag in the air here. All right, everybody listening, whether you're cooking, driving, uh, you're mowing the lawn, wherever you are when you listen to this, I want you to understand what I'm about to say. Scholars disagree about chapter 11, the first part, exactly what it means. I've read many versions of what they say, and I don't agree with those. I have a take on 1 Corinthians 11, and I might be wrong. I think I'm right, but I might be wrong. Is everybody clear? Everybody good? All right. Talking about the traditions, he says, I thank you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize there's a problem here, that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is a man and the head of Christ is God. Well, what is going on here? And if you're a woman right now beginning to chafe, back off, it's all right. You may want to run back and take a listen to our Ephesians study. Um, and we will do that again, I'm sure. But here we go. The, the kephala, the head, what does it mean? 
Well, back then head didn't mean boss, overseer, in charge of. Head meant protector, provider, developer of. It was duty, not dominance. It was service, not rank. It was responsibility, not rank. And so, let's go through it again. The head of every man is Christ. By the way, scholars all agree with that one. Uh, he is our, our head, and he is therefore good and loves us and moves us forward. The head of the woman is man. That's where we get sideways when we start thinking about as boss. My job as husband is to make my, life's, my wife's life wonderful. To develop her, let her develop her skills and her talents, let her change as the years go by, show her love every single day, ask her, what do you need? How can I help you? And keep my eyes open for that because I'm her head. Being her head doesn't mean I walk in the door and go, Cammie, what's for supper? Cammie. You know, beer me, diet coke me, water me, whatever, you know, and, and sitting down and grumbling while I'm watching sports or whatever, and, and uh, well, why don't you ever do this? When, that's not being ahead. That's being a jerk and an awful person. Ahead develops and loves. Now, so far, I'm tracking with all of the scholars that I, that I know of. I don't know them all. I read more science than I do theology. Um, Theologians have their own language. And then the head of, head of Christ is God. Well, all right. We don't see God looking at Jesus going, well, why don't you do this? Start the, no. It's a unit. Now here's where some scholars begin to go one way and another way and another way and where I'm gonna give you my own take. I know it's gonna be a little bit longer class, but I hope it's okay. If it's not, pause buttons are there for a reason. Oh, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So what do people do? They put a covering on women whenever they go into churches. I've been to many churches where every woman had to have a hat or what, and, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, I just don't know the name for it. Uh, a little doily, like, on the back of their head. Um, I think a lot of those are quite pretty, frankly. But that's not what he's talking about. He just told you the head of woman is man. Women should pray with their head covered. What in the world's going on there? Ladies, one of the reasons I adore Cammie is that she knows me and she loves me. She doesn't uncover me. She doesn't go to women's groups or sit around with her friends and talk about the stupid things Patrick did. Now he tried to fix this, but he broke it. And how he thought he knew this, but he didn't. And about how he thought he was young and strong enough to play that game and he pulled a muscle or whatever. She doesn't do that. When she talks of me, she talks of me with respect and love and kindness and blindness. She keeps me covered. To me, that's the only way this passage makes sense. If you are walking around dissing your husband constantly or revealing his nakedness, his inabilities, his failures, 
his silliness, stupid, whatever. And we all can, can't we? We know each other, we can do that, but don't. It's gonna interfere with your prayers. Then, he said, that's just the same as having your head shaved in that culture that was considered um, what you did to traitors or sex workers or great sinners, you shaved the woman's head. Uh, they did that all the way through after World War II to French women who collaborated. Most of them didn't collaborate, they were raped, but they were treated as collaborators. It's just, just he's saying, this shames you. If you shame your husband, you're shaming yourself. If a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. He says, it's a disgrace, so don't do that. And then, hang on, gotta get a little drink here. Whew. A man not should not cover his head. So what happens? In churches, when you walk in, men take off their hats. Absolutely not what's being discussed here. Your head is Christ. When you pray, you ought to be praying, recognizing that your head is Christ. So watch the way you pray. Watch the way you ask. Watch the way you treat people because your head is Christ. If I am living my life covering my head, in other words, nobody could tell I'm a Christian. Then I decide to pray. God says, no, you've hidden your savior. You've hidden your head. I've had, um, once we were out golfing, and, um, three of us and another man, uh, they said, can he join you? Make a foursome, happens a lot. And we said, sure. We had a, he, had a, he was an older man at that time, younger than I am now, uh, wearing a t-shirt that wasn't quite nice. And a hat had a couple words on it that weren't quite acceptable. But we didn't say anything. But he would hit the ball and curse, hit the ball and curse, putt and curse, putt and curse. The other two looked at me and I said, um, I, we waited nine holes and at the turn I said, you just, you might want to be aware that you're playing golf with a pastor and two deacons. And he cursed again and he goes, I don't mind, I'm a Christian. What? He'd been covering his head. It should never be a surprise, I'm a Christian. What? We didn't know. Men have to pray with their head uncovered. You guys focus on Jesus. And that means the way you treat everybody else too. And then he said, you're the image of God, but man is a, a woman is the glory of man. There's no question. There is no question. Women are prettier. They are more creative. And yes, I'm being stereotypical here. And there are many, many exceptions, but I'm talking about the bulk and balance of the numbers. Women beautify the planet and they bring another perspective to men that men desperately need. Cammie is my glory. And I've told her many times, although she doesn't like it when I say it, that if she were to die or become disabled, I would quit ministry because I cannot do this without this strong, wise, kind, loving person right there. Men, that's how you are to treat your wives. There are a lot of wives that are neglected while husbands go do ministry. Don't do that. Don't do that. And then he says, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And here's where people go, oh, wait a minute. Women are just created for men. 
you might not have caught that. We weren't created for you. You don't need us in the same way we need you. God knew man wasn't going to make it on his own. He waited till man realized he was floundering about and then made woman. And then he says, she's your helper. And the word helper there is almost always referring to God. He is my helper. He is my strength. He is my helper. But at this one time, it was given to women. She's an agent of God to help us because, well, you know what happens. A wife dies, a man will remarry, if at all possible. A husband dies, most women aren't interested in remarrying. What, what's the difference? Men need women more than women need men, and that's what this passage talks about. It is not a diss of women. It's a lifting up. It's for this reason that a woman had, ought to have authority over her own head, and that means a sign of authority. Um, she's not independent of man, she's not, and man's not independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, and everything comes from God. What was going on here was there were women that were leading women are the best groups in Corinth. We're going to get to that. They were being disruptive. And there were men who were acting anything like anything but, but a Christian. So he just tacks on a little here about the culture, you know, saying, doesn't judge it for yourself. You know, when a man has long hair, it's a shame to him. But when a woman has long hair, it's a glory. And we tried to make that a command. Remember back in the 60s and 70s? Uh, there are a lot of sermons on here. But we'll pick that up next time. Hope you've enjoyed the ride. I've certainly enjoyed being with you. It's Patrick at rsafeharbor.com. Thank you for all of you who give support, love, and who check in on Sundays. You make us smile. And that's what I'm doing right now. Cheers.